We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. My name is Mike V. Hill. Sam Cooper, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Let's talk. We're five and two. Really great, right? It's a good week. <laughs> five and two in the last seven games. Uh, a lot of wins since last time against the two best teams in the NBA. I got nothing to complain about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Before we get started, I do want to say something real quick. I wanted to shout out everyone that has rated or reviewed us on their uh, podcast apps or our YouTube fa- page or even our Facebook. We got a nice recommendation on our Facebook page, which I didn't even know existed until somebody did that for us. So just thank you uh, for everyone who's done that for us in the past. And if you want to rate and review us, you can. If you don't, it's okay. But they are nice reminders for us and why we put so much time into this. So thank you to everyone that did do that recently. Now, the Suns had quite a week since our last episode, but I want to talk about the games first, the basketball, because that's the most interesting part to me. Uh, first thing that happens, the Suns beat the number one seed in the East, the Bucks, 105-114 at home. Then they beat the Knicks at home, 107-96. We own the Knicks now. Uh, we did lose to Portland in a game that was 120-127, which does not reflect how the game actually went because it felt like much more of a beatdown than that and then of course the most interesting thing that happened the Suns beat the Golden State Warriors at their home floor that that is kind of insane this is the first time the Suns beat the Warriors in 19 tries the first time Devin Booker has beaten the Warriors 
at all in his entire career. And he was absolutely sensational. A very interesting week for basketball. Sam, how do you feel about all this? I know we have, a, I'm sure there's a ton that we want to talk about. So we'll just kind of pick and choose different things that we've noticed from these games. Uh, yeah, it's been great overall. They're almost every player on the Suns roster, really almost every player has been playing fantastic basketball for the last week. And the, the defensive intensity is up. The three-point shooting is up. They're, they're actually hitting their shots in some recent games. And uh, overall, it just looks really encouraging. The resilience, too, uh, in a game like the one against Golden State, where they went down 27-11 early on in the first quarter and uh, could have hung their heads low and, and just given up at that point, and they were able to come back against just one of the best teams of all time. So really credit to the squad over the last week. It's been a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting week for these games for a lot of reasons. Obviously, one of the best weeks so far of Devin Booker's career. That's not a joke. Literally one of the best weeks of his career as far as wins and losses. Uh, and they really got up to play against the best teams. So obviously, we can start with the Bucks game a little bit. Uh, the most interesting story from that game was DeAndre Ayton, who guarded Giannis after guarding LeBron. Now, we talked about it on our last episode. Is DeAndre Ayton going to guard Giannis? We could have expected it to happen. Giannis just doesn't shoot. It made the most sense for him to guard Giannis. He also had 19-12. and 12. He dominated that game. Oubre had another great game. Very interesting to see how he guarded Giannis and what he did. He just kind of contained him. It did throw Giannis off a little bit. He he played below his averages. He had a lot of turnovers in the deep in the paint, and uh, you know he looked like a guy who could be an excellent defender later in his career. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, and, and overall in this game, I mean, so let's be honest a little bit. Uh, the Suns sort of got lucky against both the Bucks and and the Warriors, only in the sense that it took really poor three point shooting. Um, performances out of both teams in order to get the win. And that reflected in the Milwaukee game because Milwaukee shot 28% from downtown. They shot 12 of 42. But I think generally this is what we're going to see. The Suns sort of exposed Giannis uh, overall. And I think this is how we're going to see teams uh, really copy this strategy and take on the Bucks in the playoffs is you want an athletic mobile big uh, with sort of the, the longest amount of wingspan and, and longest arms possible and most strength uh, to be the guy that you put on Giannis. Uh, and, and not worry so much about the rest of the guys like Brooke Lopez, for instance, who are just going to spot up from about 30 feet out. Yeah, it, I think Stan Van Gundy called it the wall, right? He said, form, <laughs> form a fucking wall. That's that's the famous quote from Stan Van Gundy. And the um, Suns broadcast talked a lot about Igor Kokoshkov. He told them build a wall. He he was making a, you know, they were obviously making a reference to the, the, the wall of politics right now. And they, they referenced it many times. Igor Kokoshkov basically said, form a wall. Do not let him in. They kind of formed a box around the paint with their defenders, and they tried to contain every single drive. And a lot of times that meant throwing multiple defenders at Giannis so that if he tried to retreat back, there was another defender behind him, and that turned into uh, quite a few turnovers or some insane passes, to be honest. There was, there was a few passes of Giannis jumping up in the air and kind of throwing it. Uh, out of control Josh Jackson-esque passes if you will uh, that were just out of control passes so the way first of all the game plan by Igor Kokoshkov and and his staff very 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 smart and shout out to the players of course for actually going in and 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 doing that game plan very very well Uh, containing him Aiton of course very very good we talked about 19 points and 12 rebounds but the other thing I want to point out 
Kelly Oubre, who's been starting, has been excellent throughout this run. Very, very good as a starter, 18.9 points per game. In this game, though, he had 27 points and 13 rebounds, which is a career high in rebounds. He also had a career high 17 free throw attempts in this game. And I think there's something about Kelly Oubre when he drives, right? Sometimes it bothers Suns fans because he's not, he's got that tunnel vision. But because he just is relentless in his attacking, as he gets better and a little more in control, those free throw attempts can really shoot up. Now, that was obviously an outlier. 17 free throw attempts is a lot. But I don't think it's insane to say that he can't increase that more and more and more throughout his career, assuming he stays here on the Suns. We'll get to see it. Uh, but I was really impressed with him in that game, and I've been impressed with him throughout the time that he's been starting. Yeah, I mean, Kelly's been really good, just to pull up the stats that that I think you and a bunch of other people in the community have mentioned. Uh, since he became a starter, which was nine games ago, he's averaging 18.9 points, six rebounds, 1.9 steals per game, and a block uh, on 45% shooting, and, and a decent clip from three and a decent clip from the free throw line as well. But yeah, he, he really has sort of like a more controlled Sorry to pick on Josh Jackson again so early, but it's like taking the aggression of Josh Jackson and, and sort of just uh, being a little bit more refined about it so you don't see the same sort of ridiculous turnover rate. Uh, now, I do think the next step for Kelly is he has to sort of figure out how to reduce that tunnel vision and uh, because eventually he's going to go through shooting slumps and he's going to struggle with his shot, and you don't want him to be taking 15 shots a game and, and not sort of swinging the ball around and rotating and finding open guys. Uh, and of course, the other problem is that he's he's not quite the three-point shooter that a guy like TJ Warren proved to be in the first half of the season. But overall, his defensive intensity has been uh, really infectious for the rest of the guys on this roster. And it's just clear that he fits in really well in the locker room. Basically, everyone on the roster seems to really like Kelly Oubre Jr. Yeah, Valley Boys. They're the Valley Boys yeah. now. They're the Valley Boys. And, and, you know, it's not typical that a guy comes in who's not known to be a star player and and just comes in on what was such a bad team that that was sort of pitying itself halfway through the season and and just fits in immediately and becomes one of the most popular, most charismatic guys in the locker room. So Ubre's really done a fantastic job being able to do that in just about a month. Now, when when this game happened and, and the Lakers game, what I was thinking about at the time is it's nice to see that Devin Booker doesn't really have to take it all on his shoulders to win these games. I think the two most impressive, the standouts from that game against the Bucks were, were DeAndre Ayton and Kelly Oubre. And to win against a team that good, you need more than Devin Booker. Now, of course, Devin Booker was still good in that game. We wouldn't really survive a game against a team that's that good without Devin Booker playing well. But 22 points, 7 assists, 5 rebounds, that's below his averages. He, he We were able to win that game with Devin Booker staying below his average in scoring, which is a nice thing to happen. So overall, throughout this time, uh, I've, I've been thinking that. But then the Knicks game happened, and the Knicks game was a fun game. Uh, the Suns, this was a home game. The Suns won 107-96. to They absolutely dominated the second half of this game. But one fun part about this game was this was Devin Booker's first 40-point game or 40-plus point game at home and in this game he had 41 4 and 5 and I think going forward as we kind of go through these games to get to that Golden State game we absolutely needed Devin Booker to become the Devin Booker that we were used to seeing last season which we have seen a little bit less this season although he's been more consistent this season there hasn't been as many big explosions or at least it hasn't felt like there's been as many big explosions from him where he just absolutely dominates a game the way he did 
in this Knicks game. So it was nice to see Devin Booker come back in this Knicks game and, and just be that guy to, to take over this game and absolutely dominate them. Apparently, he even called it before the game and said, I'm getting 40 tonight, and ended up with 41, which it took a few attempts there at the end to make sure he was over that 40-point mark. Um, what did you think about this Knicks game? First of all, it should be said uh, that given the recent winning streak, the Knicks have now sort of firmly planted themselves in first mm-hmm. place in the race for Zion. I don't think anyone's catching them at this point. They're still stuck at 13 wins. Everyone else, including Phoenix, now has at least 16. This was a great game for Devin Booker, and I think what you were talking about, being more consistent but but having less blowing up performances, I think that's just uh, because of how teams have been guarding Devin Booker. We've seen it all season long. Yeah. Um, also a matter of circumstance, just him having to create for himself more. We've been talking about how his three-point efficiency was dipping. This was a game, Devin Booker shot six for ten from three. Uh, in that game, it was, I believe, tying his uh, career high for most made threes in a game. I don't think he's ever had a game with mm-hmm. seven. Uh, so that was just a, another outlier that we haven't really seen from him this season. That was really fun to see. Uh, and yeah, overall, it was really nice to see him also. He's a plus 17 uh, because I think we've had sort of a bit of a driven narrative. It, it hasn't been many people talking about this, but maybe some people questioning to what extent the Suns are actually better with Devin Booker on the floor this season. This was a game where it was unquestionably the offense was being driven by Devin Booker and it was it was just good to see him maybe get some of those haters off his back for a night I mean that's a, that's a narrative that's followed around Devin Booker since he sort of rose to stardom ever since he sort of planted himself in that young player conversation that that sort of question of how how much better he makes a team that he plays on is going to follow him especially from play from uh, media members I should say that are not Suns focused. I think for most people who really watch the Suns, and I mean really watch the Suns, which is hard to do. I don't blame these national media writers for not doing it, especially like this late in the season. Most of the time, these games don't matter at all. But when you watch them, you understand the value he brings to the team. And I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir right now, but another thing I noticed from that next game that I just wanted to talk about really quickly is Rashawn Holmes and how good Rashawn Holmes was in this game. Now, if you look at the stats, nothing really blows you away. But in this game, there was DeAndre Ayton was in foul trouble early. So Rashawn Holmes had to get a lot of run in this game. And the way he contained drives in the second half and the way he played defense on big men was really impressive. And I, you know, I know that he's done this time and time again, but he had a huge responsibility in this game for the next game because our, you know, our, one of our best players in DeAndre Ayton he needed help because he's gotten foul trouble early and to see how good he's been throughout this uh this win streak as well is nice because having you know this this is the suns we haven't really had an extended period of time where you have good play from the center position especially all 48 minutes and to see that over this last uh, few few weeks has been nice to see now, Rashawn Holmes, I just wanted to give him a shout-out coming in and, and playing so well, including against Noah Vonley, who we talked about, you know, for, for, for a potential, for who hasn't been as good. He played, Although I, th- I thought he played well. Vonley played pretty well in Suns. that game. You know, you know what was sad is, I mean, I think that sort of just points to what the Knicks offense has become. Kevin Knox really struggled in that yeah. game. But there was a stretch in the first half where the Knicks' entire offense was Noah Vonley post-ups. And he was doing pretty well with them. Uh, so I still haven't completely abandoned yeah. the idea that Vonley would be a good pickup for the Suns. Uh, but that's a different conversation for a different day. Yeah, you know, it's just that three-point shot. Oh, yeah. That's really all it I is. You, if yeah. he can keep that three-point shot up, then I think he would be a great fit. And if he can't, then probably not. And we're talking about this is this is a, a strikeout 
pick, right? Because if we strike out on on those potential stars, or if we focus our our majority of our cap space on the point guard, Noah Vaughn, that could be an option where we pay a little less and we it's, get good defense in there. It's a, like a younger Thaddeus Young. You know, you're betting on him becoming, because I saw you mentioned Thaddeus Young on Twitter the other day. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like Thaddeus Young is a guy who's on the downhill uh, arc in his career, and, and Vonley is a guy you would be betting on getting him a little bit undervalue when he sort of grows into that role over the next one or two seasons and continues to develop. It's So, yeah, it's a strikeout pick. It's it's not fancy. It's not sexy. Yeah, but it'd be a good... So, I think we just nicknamed him, by the way. He's now Thaddeus Younger. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it just works. Might have to work. It on, works. Might have to work on that. I could maybe get behind that. We'll see what happens in July. Uh, but but Rashawn Holmes, um, we should keep talking about him. Yeah, he's been great. Um, and man, Rashawn Holmes and Kelly Oubre, it's nice to see the Suns winning games, but they might be driving up their value in free agents yeah. before the season ends, and, and they're going to put us in a difficult position. Yeah, you pointed out, actually, if you want to talk about this now, too, you pointed out how efficient oh, yeah. he is in the pick and roll. Yeah, so, now we have some stats. We, yeah, so we have the stats. Sorry, let's shuffle around a little bit. Um, Rashawn Holmes, four, okay, 41 players in the NBA have been the uh, roll man off a of pick and roll uh, for at least 100 possessions. So these are mostly, you know, these are the high usage type players. These are the prevailing big power forwards and centers in the NBA. DeAndre Ayton is on that list as well. Rashawn Holmes is on that list. And of those 41, Rashawn Holmes is second in the NBA in his efficiency off of pick and rolls. He finishes uh, for a value of 1.33 points per possession off the pick and roll. Uh, So again, the second most efficient big man when it comes to finishing off those plays behind just DeAndre Jordan. Uh, And overall in the NBA is in the 88th percentile. So He's just, it's with a variety of moves too, is I think what the most impressive thing is. He's not just a lob catcher. He's a guy who, he's got a little bit of a floater game. He can catch it out from about the free throw line and he really likes to put the ball on the floor now. And he has this little little, um, shimmy move from side to side where he'll put the ball on the Mm -hmm. floor, sort of fake his defender out, get him to go right and then go left uh, and go up and under with a layup. So it's not like he's just a dunker. He's been a really, really efficient player inside the post. Uh, in a variety of ways, and he's just the perfect backup to uh, Aiton right now, the perfect complement, and uh, I, I think I speak for everyone when I really hope that the Suns re-sign him come summertime. question is for how much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple things on that. First, I think I heard Daryl Morey have an orgasm when you were reading those stats. And <laughs> the second thing, <laughs> I just want to say, the fact that he's this efficient on a team without a point guard is incredible because... We're not. First of all, we're not setting him up for a ton of wide open dunks. This isn't DeAndre Jordan on the Clippers with uh, Chris Paul and JJ Redick, where they're sucking the defense out and then just lobbing it to him for wide open dunks. He is doing this against defenders. He's absorbing contact. He's got that euro step, that shimmy move that you talked about. He's shooting up and over them. He has a little bit of a floater, maybe from like eight to ten feet. You know, nothing too far out there. And the fact that he remains that efficient on this Suns team. It's remarkable. And I can tell you one thing. General managers, these are the stats that they look at. So when we're talking about keeping Rashawn Holmes, you know, it feels... I don't want it to happen, but it feels less likely. I think there's a chance, and I think there's a good chance, that we end up keeping Kelly Oubre, especially with how he's performed recently. But I think there's some general managers that are circling Rashawn Holmes, and he could be a starting center on a playoff team, I think, right now. Now, it it remains to be seen if he can keep up this level of play at, at, you know, longer stretches of minutes. 
but that's the type of risk that I think a general manager will take. They they don't they probably don't have to really outbid us too much for a guy like Rashawn Holmes because we just don't have uh, you know unlimited cap space to keep these guys, especially if we try to target the types of players that James Jones has said in the past that we're planning on targeting, which are guys in their late twenties that are you know pros in, in the NBA. Those guys demand a little more salary, so. You know, he's playing really well, like you said, but he's he's also raising up that overall value, which is going to make it hard to keep him. Well, you know, more more than ever, I think, just like what, my last final point on this, I think it's so hard to predict the value of the center position specifically in the NBA, uh, in the NBA because what we expect out of our centers is kind of constantly in flux. And it seems like there's a really subtle difference between the types of centers that hit the free agency market and sign for the veteran minimum a guy who can basically only, you know, set high screens, uh, but maybe they're strong screens and dunk uh, versus some of the guys that get $15 million these days who maybe don't do too much more than that. Uh, you know, like maybe those are still guys who don't have range, but they just do it in such an elite way that there's just it's a, a subtle difference. And, you know, when you have guys like Brooke Lopez who are making only $4 million, it's granted that was a different market then it's going to be this summer with Holmes as an unrestricted free agent. But it's just so hard to say exactly what GMs are going to be throwing at Rashawn Holmes. All season long, I, I feel like I've been throwing out 6 to $8 million as a ballpark estimate, but right now I just really don't know. Well, even if that is the case, let's say that is his, his market. Do you think, and, and there's no way of knowing the answer to this question, so you don't have to answer it, but just for Suns fans, do you think that it's less likely that he would accept it if he was also offered that same amount of money on a playoff team? Yeah, well... So I think this is the problem. Right, sorry, I forgot I was, wasn't was supposed to answer. <laughs> no, I'll you stay, can't I'll answer. just stay silent. But like the Lakers, for example, <laughs> he'd be a great center with a LeBron team to take that JaVale McGee place. If, if, if he had an opportunity to play with, you know, LeBron James and whoever ends up signing with the Lakers, assuming they get another free agent, they're, they're a clear playoff team, and he'd be able to be that frontline center starting, playing that defense and catching lobs from LeBron James. Do you think he'd be more likely to accept that than play? You know, these guys, I actually think a lot of them do want to play with younger guys. No, you're so totally, we don't really know. You're totally right, but that's also sort of my point. JaVale McGee is on a veteran minimum contract. So are there teams, right. are there playoff teams willing to throw Rashawn Holmes similar market value to what the Suns would offer when they could get a center like JaVale McGee who maybe does 80, 90% of the same thing? for a veteran minimum contract. That's what I'm saying when I say there's such a subtle difference. It feels like at other positions, mm -hmm. what you get for a minimum contract versus at shooting guard or point guard, the ball handling skills, you can really tier it from sort of uh, market value to market value. What you get for a $5 million point guard is significantly different than what you get for a $15 million point guard in the free agency market. Uh, with centers, it's just not always that way. So I really don't know how GMs are going to value what he does, but I do know they're going to look at that pick-and-roll finishing ability. They're going to see that he's made significant improvements since his Philly days because he has uh, and, and done it on an offensive system that is close to dead last in the NBA still. I think we're 27th in offensive rating and without a legitimate point guard for much of the season, and they're probably going to be impressed by those numbers. So yeah, I do think Holmes is going to get significant interest. I just can't give you a number. Yeah, and I think it'll come down to, maybe it won't be a ton of money, but I think it'll come down to how much he wants to play with this young group compared to potentially getting time on a playoff team. And I hope, you know, I hope he really gets along with the guys on the Suns because I really would like to see him. I think he's just the perfect backup. We've talked about it before. 
he's the perfect backup to DeAndre Ayton. He does a lot of what he doesn't do, and he's able to step in there. And you know, you probably noticed Sam uh, the the last few games in this win streak, or or, or throughout throughout these games. Uh, Igor Kukoshkov was actually ending the first half with Rashawn Holmes more more than once. It happened quite a few times uh, throughout these games, and I think you know putting that defense on the floor, putting a guy on the floor like that that can rebound and defend, he's an important piece. So, do we have to talk about this Portland game? Nah, people don't want to hear about <laughs> yeah. that. Just just go to the Warriors game. I'll, I'll I say one see- thing. I'll say one thing. Okay, you can't let CJ McCollum go eleven for fourteen and expect to win. That's yeah. that's really it. That's it. But we beat the Golden State Warriors at Golden State. We talked about it. First time beating them in 19 tries. We had lost 18 games in a row to the Warriors, a stat that we brought up early on when we did our previews uh, in the past. And you thought I was insane, by the way, for saying that the Suns could beat the Warriors, and and I was. But it still happened. (laughs) And Devin Booker was sensational. He was absolutely amazing. And so was DeAndre Ayton. This was a very, very fun game to watch. So many things happening on the floor all at once. There was the sort of the coronation of DeAndre Ayton by Kevin Durant when he had that little turnaround uh, shot and Durant gave him the stink face. And uh, there was the little side battle between Devin Booker and Klay Thompson. You know, it kind of reminded me of what it could be like to watch. You know, you forget what it could be like to watch a team that you follow on day-to-day basis in the playoffs when these little things become... No, I'm just saying, like, it, you can see how little tiny things become a little bit more of a storyline when you play against a team like the Golden State Warriors because there's five all-stars on the team. So when you have DeAndre Ayton posting up, uh, you know, DeMarcus Cousins and, and hitting a, a fadeaway on him, it feels bigger because this is just a bigger team. They're more important. They have more uh, storylines around them. So it was just a reminder of how fun it will be if they ever get there again to watch them when the minutia of the game is really kind of blown out into like bigger storylines. I, I can't wait till it happens. I, I guess you and I do it for, for games even against the Knicks. But, you know, for the national media to focus on things like this, it'll be very fun. It was a really fun game. There's a lot to talk about from it. But what do you think? It was really fun. It was really fun to see Devin Booker open up his game with so much playmaking um, or, or rather to have his playmaking kind of open up the rest of his game to the point where he took over in the fourth quarter, but it it really took a while. It wasn't until there were about six minutes left in the fourth quarter. I think Booker was stuck at about 22 points for a while, which is still a good game. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But then he sort of just went, went nuclear uh, in the fourth quarter. And obviously that was so much fun to watch Uh, just for the Suns to be the second team this season, to beat the Warriors starting five of five all-stars, the first team being Houston. uh, And the fact that it was on the road and on the second night of a back-to-back, um, after the day after daylight savings uh that that was just incredibly impressive by the way i don't think we've ever had the conversation about arizona and daylight savings on this podcast it's kind (laughs) of irrelevant but i'm still kind of confused as to why you guys opted out uh maybe we could talk about that i'm confused why to any these are the rules that you're talking to an arizona so i've had this conversation many times these are rules that were made like a hundred years ago for farmers who didn't have alarm clocks. That's the only reason the time changes everywhere in the in the country currently, and we still go off of this. the The entire country should just abolish it. It just confuses people. Let's all get on one time zone at this point. It's just it doesn't make any sense. I I don't like it at all. 
So that and it does kind of suck, actually, you know, inside podcast here, but it does kind of suck this time of year. Sam and I are actually three hours apart. So when we're trying to do the like late night podcasts after games, it makes it a lot harder. So I'm sure if we could just get on that two two hours apart, that would be a lot easier. I'm sure Max McCauley and David Nash, if they if they still listen to us, are playing the world's <laughs> smallest violin as we talk about how we're three hours apart. Yeah. Yeah, they're like 18, 19 hours apart. Like that. <laughs> I think Max and Dave. Amazing that those guys make it work. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, back to the yeah. game. It, it was it was just great all around. The bench gave a huge boost as well. Um, shout out Rashawn Holmes, Mikhail Bridges, yeah. and, and Josh Jackson as well in this game. Yeah, watching Mikhail Bridges play against the Warriors is just, it's so fantastic because he can guard basically everyone on their roster. There were times where he was guarding Steph Curry. There was times he was guarding Klay Thompson. He was put on Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant obviously owns him the most. And Kevin Durant, smartly, when he had Mikhail Bridges on him, he would go into the post because Kevin Durant, although he doesn't look strong, he's a lot stronger than Mikhail Bridges currently is. Mikhail can get there, and I think the way that Mikhail Bridges will add strength will be a lot like the way that Kevin Durant did. It will be wiry strength. He's not going to bulk up. He's not going to be this big, massive guy, and we don't really need him to be. He just has to be able to hold his own in the post like that, and and that's where Kevin Durant was kind of owning him. But you can just see his hands were everywhere. He played well offensively. He looked you know, smart um, in the right, cutting at the right time, reaching in at the right time. Really impressive game. Uh, from Mikhail Bridges in general, and I, you know, I tweeted it out. If you were design, if you were to design a player in a lab to play against the Golden State Warriors, it would look a lot like Mikhail Bridges. You could have three or four of those guys on the floor. That would be nice because you have to be physical with them. You have to get up in their space. You can't let them uh, go around screens unabated. You have to really get up on them, and that's the type of thing that Mikhail Bridges does. You know, one thing about that Portland game, <laughs> I know we didn't want to talk about it, but at the end of the game. When the Suns kind of gave up and the, and the Trailblazers kind of gave up, to see Mikael Bridges and uh, DeAnthony Melton just sick them on their point guards and just attacking them at every moment. And Mikael Bridges, I think, was trying to get his steal streak uh, back on. He he didn't have a steal in that game, so his streak his streak was over. So he was going for steals, and it was just kind of nice to see them just like attack and attack and attack. They're really like two dogs, uh, you know, held on a leash. They, you just let them go. They sometimes. know that that's their identity. They they know yeah. that they're on the team for the defensive identity, and it's great to see. But and another thing with Mikael Bridges too, he, the facilitating continues to happen. I continue to be impressed at how such a low usage yeah. guy that spends a lot uh, a lot of possessions kind of just stuck in that corner that finds a way to find guys. The Suns are five and two in their last seven games. In those seven games, Mikael Bridges is averaging three assists and less than one turnover a game. He's averaging three assists to 0. 0.7 turnover, turnovers, uh, excuse me, which is a great ratio. And, you know, I was trying to think, actually, of comparisons for Mikael Bridges going forward that are, like, reasonable. Because I don't want to say Kawhi Leonard, and I don't want to say Paul George, and I don't want to say, you know, like, mm-hmm. like I'm trying to think of reasonable e- expectations uh, for a guy who is just a 22 year old rookie. And then if you get anything more out of him than that, then, then you're excited by that. Someone on our sons made a post about Shane Battier, uh, which I think is, is a pretty good comparison, but another guy I was thinking of, and I was thinking of specifically because of this facilitating that we've seen from him since the all-star break is like a Joe Ingles type as well. Just a really, really solid fundamental player. That's just perfect for a playoff team. Joe Ingles didn't come in to the NBA as like the 45% three-point shooter that he was last year. He came in much closer to the 35% that Mikhail Bridges is currently shooting on the season, uh, but he picks up some steals. He gets a lot of assists uh, and and is just 
great fundamentals all around, great two-way player and the type of player that coaches love. The one difference between Mikael Bridges and really any guy that you can kind of pick to be a comparison to him is his physical gifts, which are his arms. They're insanely long. The potential that his arms give him on defense is crazy. You you see it when he guards. He can reach down and dig deeper than anyone for steals. And then, of course, he can contest basically anyone in the NBA except for maybe Kevin Durant in the post. And even then, he was contesting. It's just Durant can make those. And, you know, it's hard to find a comparison. I think you're right. We've, we've thrown around a bunch of names. You know, on defense, I don't think Kawhi Leonard is that insane of a comparison. But it's just offensively, Kawhi Leonard is so gifted. It's not absurd, but but it's just not. I think Kawhi Leonard entering the league was still stronger than Mikhail Bridges yeah. is right now. It's not just about measurables, but it's but it's also about yeah. how you use your body. So it, that, it really depends on how Mikhail Bridges adds weight uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, and, and why it's so important that the Suns are building a new practice facility and maybe getting a personal mm-hmm. chef. You know, he's been, atta- <laughs> he's been attacking more, too. Uh, you know, I, I was impressed yeah, yeah. with that. He's actually getting to the rim. He's actually attempting more shots at the rim. And, you know, speaking of attacking, just quickly, DeAndre Ayton as well. I, he was, he, he's been amazing throughout this, uh, these last few games. I think the last seven games is kind of how we're looking at this. Since the Miami win, I have some stats actually since that win, and I think you do, too. So we can talk about those in just a second, but I just want to give a shout out to DeAndre Ayton. There's so much to talk about. We're not going to get to everything, but DeAndre Ayton has been attacking every switch, but not just switches. He is absolutely attacking guys like Draymond Green, uh, DeMarcus Cousins. We saw it even with Nurkic. He had a good, you know, uh, for everyone that didn't play well in that Portland game, he had a good game in that game against the Trailblazers. Uh, still, Still a good game for him. And I've just been really impressed with his ability to pick the right spots to do the right thing. He doesn't play like a rookie. And I know there's a lot of guys that are really good from this rookie class, but DeAndre Ayton has been so good at, at lately and getting better every day. And I've been very, very impressed with his growth. And that's another testament. We haven't talked about it. A lot of how good they've played is a testament to how good Igor Kokoshkov and his staff has been. This team is not built very well, and they've been playing very well for the last few games, and that's a testament to their staff, and I think they are developing DeAndre Ayton in the right way, regardless of how many threes he shoots. Can you imagine us having this conversation a month ago? No, a month ago. It feels like we hit a low point. We did. (laughs) 17 games in a row, lost. No, it's just hearing this conversation about Igor when I think it was literally three weeks ago that we we were saying... For the millionth time, no, Igor shouldn't be fired, but let's entertain this right. idea anyway. It's just kind of funny. I'm glad we, I feel funny we're on the quick, right side of that argument, yeah. I think. I, I'm glad I'm glad we stuck to our guns on that I mean, one. See, you say that now, but if the team... The fans are so fickle. If the Suns lost six games in a row right now, would we be right back to fire Igor all over Suns Twitter? Yeah. Probably. Yes. I mean, you, the, you know, the descent... The people who are the loudest are generally the people who are the angriest. So those are the ones that we tend to focus on or see the most. But that doesn't mean they're right. They're just the most angry. They're the loudest. I have a few stats I want to get to, and then we're going to take a break. I know we have a lot more to talk about in this episode. An interesting week all around, just like a lot of weeks this season, surprisingly. Just some stats. So I pulled some stats, and you might have some too, and feel free to interject if you if you want to throw some out there. But I wanted to look at the overall team stats for since the Miami game and, and up till now just to see how differently and what sort of stands out from the season up to that point and from that game until now. So a couple of things I've noticed, um, the free throw shooting. So we've talked a lot about free throw shooting. We talked about how this team gets rooked a lot. They don't get a lot of calls. 
Up until that Miami game, they were averaging 21.5 free throw attempts a game. Since that game, in the last seven games, they're averaging almost 29 free throw attempts. So 28.9 free throw attempts per game. So this is a massive, massive increase in points. Just, you know, seven, uh, potentially eight more points a game in, in, in free throws alone. And I think a lot of that is a testament to Kelly Oubre and his just attacking and attacking and attacking. But also I think we've noticed that Devin Booker kind of has his first step back. And I think he's getting a lot more foul calls just from getting by guys and doing that sort of lift your arms up into them thing and getting free throws from that alone. He's good at that. Um, yeah, well, and he's also he's been shooting like 98% from the free throw line yeah. over the seven-game stretch. Yeah. That's just absurd. He's really been carrying the team from that standpoint, but I think you're right about his first step being back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's also been a slightly better percentage in three point shooting, which is an important thing. We've talked a lot about it. This offense would just look a lot better if we made our open three point shots. You know, we, we've, yeah. this is one of our defenses for Igor Kokoshkov. You know, it's, it's not a huge increase, but it was 32% basically to 35%. 35% yeah. is a good percentage. No, it's, it's, it's basically, you know, going to league average. They shot 40% from three versus the Knicks, Heat, and Golden State. And if you think about it, all three of those games were close wins, and just missing one or two of those threes could have swung the game the other way. Mm-hmm. The The Suns have only shot 40% from deep as a team 14 games this year. But in those 14 games, they're 9-5. and five, And that's really why it's just it's so simple. It's such a simple analysis, really, but you know, hit more threes, win more games. You don't want to live by the three, die by the three necessarily, but it's the one thing that prevents me from going full on towards this idea of just kick TJ Warren off the team, give Kelly Oubre whatever he wants, even if it's like $18 million a year. And then like, you know, the Suns could draft Zion. They could luck into Zion with the first overall pick, but what happens then? Like Zion obviously improves your team. He obviously makes the talent level a lot better. Or even if you want to talk about John Moran at point guard, these guys obviously make the team better going forward next year. But if Ubre shoots 31, 32% from deep again, if DeAndre Ayton struggles from three because he hasn't been taking those all year, if Zion or Morant struggle from three because those are the types of players they are, then you start to worry about the Suns really being able to sustain an elite level of success going forward. You can make a team that's good, but you can't really make a team that's elite unless you start to bring in more shooters. Um, and, and so that's like my one quip about like Kelly Oubre's performance over the past couple of weeks. He's been so great, but how amazing would it be if he could somehow be the next TJ Warren and, and improve his three-point shot over the summer? I feel like that's really the one thing he needs to work on. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I will say just, just quickly, and I don't want to get into a whole draft discussion. We have a lot of that coming in the next few weeks. But John Morant, a guy like him who is so good at playmaking will increase our three-point shooting in general. I think we talked about it with Devin Booker, that responsibility falling on Devin Booker means he's not able to take as many catch-and-shoot threes. So having another guy that can attack and playmake for others I think will still increase the three-point percentage across the team, even if they themselves are not a great three-point shooter. So uh, I agree with that, but I, even Zion, you know, his ability to draw guys into the paint I think would increase it across the board, and he can find guys too. You know, but yeah, I, I do agree with you just on principle, but I think there are ways to increase the guys we have, their shooting percentages, and that can get better with other players. And, you know, not that there's a ton of hope for, you know, Kelly Oubre, we don't really know, but I think Devin Booker is a player that his three-point percentage will go up as we add better yes. players to this team. 
Devin Booker is a guy who it's just so very clear that he's a good three point shooter in a bad situation. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's he's kind of an exception to the rule. One more stat for me, and I tweeted this one out. Since the Miami win, the Suns are playing at the sixth fastest pace in the NBA. Um, and I, t- I said it helps to have Tyler Johnson, but I think even without him, we're keeping the yes. pace up. But I think it's really important to just keep that pace up throughout the rest of the season because I think that's the future of this team. They're young. When you're young, you play with speed. It creates easy buckets for a team that isn't able to get a lot of easy buckets. I've been complaining about it since the beginning of the season. We didn't have a point guard last year, but we were third in pace last year. So I think it's possible to play at a faster pace even without a perfect point guard in on this team. So, uh, you know, I've been very, really impressed with, with the pace, and I, and I hope they keep that going. You, you notice they're even running after misses. We didn't do a lot of that. Uh, after makes, I should say. We didn't do a lot of that early in the season. We do a lot of, uh, you know, on turning turning the ball over, it's easy to run. That's a natural thing to do. That Your momentum's taking you towards the basket on the other end. But to run after makes, it takes discipline and it takes coaching, and you have to constantly be on guys to do that because they're tired. So shout out to Igor, shout out to his staff. I really like that stat, and I and I hope that continues. You know, it's a nice trend, and I, I think this is the Suns. We have a history of being fast, and I hope they continue to do that. Any other thoughts on these games? Any other stats that you want to point out? Uh, no, that's that's about it. I think we can maybe move on to other things that happened this week that were kind of interesting. What a fun conversation to have, right? <laughs> Talk about three <laughs> wins against good teams. What is this black mirror? Is this an alternate universe? And our, our schedule to finish the season. I don't know if our listeners have looked ahead, but like this bodes really well for the end of the season. If this team keeps up the energy uh, and, and they remain focused and really like to run and, and are committed and want to finish the season strong. Uh, some of the teams we're playing towards the end of the season. I mean, we play Utah like three times. We play Houston another couple times, I think. But for the most part, it's bad teams, uh, or at least okay teams. So the Suns have a real. This is this is one of the saddest things I've ever said. But the Suns have a real chance to push for like 22, 23 wins <laughs> by the end of the season. Uh, which, given where we were a couple of weeks ago, you know, honestly, I'll take it. Now that we've been snapped back to reality, let's take a quick break and we'll continue on that. the winning and all the fun basketball there was also a sort of sobering moment in that when ESPN's Kevin Arnovitz one of their best writers wrote a very long form piece about the dysfunction of the Phoenix Suns front office and the owner Um, he described an owner that's been too involved with decision making including stories and I think this is the important part of it because we've been told a lot about how Uh, Robert Sarver has been too involved, but what this did is it includes specific examples of things that have happened. So it had a story about stopping a coach midway to the locker room at halftime to complain about adjustments, um, yelling at Suns players on the court, which I've heard is Matt Barnes, so I'm okay with it. 
uh, yelling at Grant Hill in front of the team. That one, not so okay with. Grant Hill's a legend, and when he was on the Suns, he's proven to be a legend. So yelling at Grant Hill in the locker room in front of the team, not okay. Uh, there was a funny story about bringing goats into Ryan McDonough's office to encourage him to get a goat, a greatest of all time, of his own. And then the goats shit all over the office in one of the most perfect metaphors of all time. Um, it also included stories of Suns staff members, and I think this is the important part, not knowing who's in charge. Other teams not knowing who to call if they want to make a trade. Uh, you know, interesting parts of this sort of not really understanding, lack of communication. A lot of problems with management, right, is always a lack of communication. And there's been a lack of communication on this end. It did describe the relationship between James Jones and Trevor Buckstein. Trevor Buckstein appears to be the more traditional general manager as we know it, where he's the guy who probably will be taking the calls about trades, the guy who'll be writing up the contracts, the guy who'll be negotiating with agents. And James Jones is more front-focused. He's more the guy that deals directly with the players. He fixed the weight room. In an interesting anecdote, he, he fixed the weight room. Um, he talks about uh, you know fixing the culture. And there was interesting criticisms of James Jones and his leadership in that they didn't understand exactly what uh, they needed to do and who they were answering to, including the coaching staff. That was another part of it. And then, uh, you know, James Jones, they talked a lot about James Jones sort of seeding the it more minutia, the more, you know, parts about the uh, the cap and interesting stuff like that, to, the nerdy stuff to Trevor Buckstein, if you will. And, and and not and just being okay letting him take all of that. So you, you kind of got a better understanding of who is who and what their roles are. And this, in fact, this article might have been <laughs> the most communication the Suns uh, have had about <laughs> what the roles are <laughs> in that front office so far. Um, a lot to talk about, but I do kind of want to whip through it because it was such, you know, it feels like a year ago already, even though it was just last Monday. Uh, but what did you think about this article? First of all, fascinating. Good work, Kevin Artovitz. But what did you think, Sam? Uh, well, yeah, I think the most important thing here, other than that, it feels like a hit piece on Sarver, which is totally deserved. But I think the most important takeaway for Suns fans is kind of that uh, we've been discussing and analyzing all of our moves this season in a James Jones this, James Jones that sort of way. Uh, and, and it's just important for us to realize that it's really kind of a two-faced front office between James Jones and Trevor Buckstein, that they seem to have two very different uh, sets of responsibilities, as you were mentioning, and, and that when we talk about things like the, was the DeAnthony Melton trade with James Jones, or with, no, that was Ryan McDonough, so sorry, with the Kelly Oubre trade and the Ryan Anderson for uh, Tyler Johnson trade, that these are things that we should be bringing Trevor Buckstein's name uh, into consideration as well when, when we talk about that sort of analysis and about the future of this front office and what it's going to look like. Yeah, I agree with that. I think we've been talking about James Jones as a general manager. This made it very clear in a way that we haven't seen before that it's more than that. It's these two guys working in tandem. James Jones seems to have a lot of insight because of his experience in the NBA, but it seems like a lot of the decisions are, are in tandem. And I think, you know, based on the way the story paints Robert Sarver, the, the final decision maker is likely still Robert Sarver, which is a problem still. But, you know, it's it's I don't know that that's ever going to go away at this point. Uh, one thing I will say is I actually came away from this article feeling good about James Jones. I thought what it said that he has done so far, uh, fixing the weight room, like a big problem with this team, we've talked about it, is our facilities. We need better facilities. So fixing the weight room, I think, is a good thing that he's done so far. Uh, what it criticized him for, I think, 
was not being able to fix all the problems at once. And I don't hold him accountable for that. What I think he's done is focus on individual problems, culture, setting the right culture, finding the right culture, guys, fixing the weight room, making sure players understand what's expected of them. That's kind of what it described in his role. That's the type of role that I want James Jones in. So whether or not that means he's going to be the general manager or maybe maybe both of these guys will be in the future, I don't know. But I think some of that criticism that was pointed at him maybe was a little unfair. He can't fix everything at once. And if he's focusing on culture and trying to fix that, that's probably the right thing to focus on at first. And then you sort of the leadership and everything is involved with that. But, you know, that is sort of secondary to making sure the players understand what's expected of them. The other thing I want to say is the quotes from Robert Sarver I found interesting. Now, I don't have the exact quote, but basically he said, in his past businesses, he focused on hiring young people and then developing them. And uh, he said he didn't value enough how much experience matters in the NBA. So I thought that was interesting because it sort of implies that if they hire outside of what we have right now, it's going to be someone of experience. And if it is someone of experience, that means that he's going to have to fork over some cash because it costs more to get someone with experience. And the fact is, if you get it, if you get a president of basketball operations with experience onto the Suns, there's going to be a Robert Sarver tax, a tax for dealing with an owner that's too involved. So you have to pay even more with the understanding that they're going to get more because of that responsibility and that money that's involved. So you know, I don't know where we're going to go from here. Obviously, this is going to be a story that we're going to be covering throughout, uh, you know, the off season. And who knows? Supposedly, they started looking for a general manager already. But I imagine there's going to be more and more and more coming out of this. Um, do you have any thoughts on those things that I just brought up, Sam? No, I think you make a good point. People have brought up David Griffin's name for ages. I think for David Griffin to come back to the Suns and, and deal with Robert Sarver being in his ear all the time, it would take considerably more money than if he were to sign somewhere else. Uh, like, I'm sure he wants a job in the NBA, but that's just the way it is. Uh, and yeah, I think the Robert Sarver tax is a good way to put it. Yep, there's going to be a tax. So one more thing. I haven't been fully honest with everyone here. <laughs> there's one more thing I want to talk about, and I'm glad that you're all here to hear this. Now, however, however many of you are still here on the podcast, I appreciate you being here. Because this is an important conversation. We are about to have an intervention. And this intervention is related to a player named Josh Jackson. So I have a letter I want to read. I just want to read this to Suns fans real quick. Now maybe this doesn't apply to all of you Suns fans. But it will apply to some of you and you know who you are. Okay. Here I go. Dear Suns fans. Thank you for giving me the chance to talk to you today. There are so many things that I want to say and share with you, but it basically comes down to this. I'm worried about your Josh Jackson standing, and it's time to seek treatment. Before you began Josh Jackson standing, we were so close. There was nothing I couldn't tell you, and we always had a great time together through winning and losing. You were my best friend in so many ways, but after years of standing, I barely see that happy, fun person anymore. You seem sad, you're struggling with your health, with the stress caused by standing, and every day I see the problems that standing is causing pile up higher and higher. I'm worried every day that you're going to end up in the hospital or dead or in the back of a police car. 
I want to do everything I can to help you get back to that place of health and just being okay without Josh Jackson playing so many minutes. We've talked about it a hundred times before, but today is different. Today I'm hoping you will accept the opportunity to get help. Your standing is not your fault. You can't help the fact that we use the fourth overall pick on him or the changes that take place in your brain when you become a Suns fan. Standing is a wicked disease. It changes everything about how you think and what you want and what you love and who you are. You don't have to keep living like this. There is help available. Thank you for joining us for this intervention. Sam, how do you feel about Josh Jackson? Uh, oh, I feel like that's a loaded question. <laughs> First of all, a beautiful, a beautiful letter, uh, Mike, and uh, and a reminder to all those that are that are still listening that we're here to help you get help uh, in in any way you need. So, hopefully, you're you're not afraid to to ask for it if you need it. Josh Jackson, when I was talking at the beginning of this episode, saying that uh, the Suns are winning games right now and everyone is playing well, or or almost everyone is playing well. Josh Jackson is kind of the guy I was referring to. I don't like watching Josh Jackson play basketball right now. That's that's about the easiest way to say it. And if Kelly Oubre continues to play really well, TJ Warren comes back eventually, Mikhail Bridges continues to play well, we're just going to keep having this conversation about what to do. And here's the truth of it. At some point... It does not make sense to continue giving him minutes if he's still the worst player or basically the worst player in the NBA. Now, I'm not saying that it's not okay to have hope. It's okay to have hope, but you also have to accept that he's been very, very, very bad even through these wins. And, you know, it's hard to really tell because Josh Jackson is such an interesting player. He's such an anomaly um, when he does something good, it's always spectacular. It looks crazy. He's he's going up and dunking. He's jamming it on a fast break. He's getting a steal and running out, you know, or trying to dunk on some players, which he still hasn't successfully done. Uh, but the stats are very, very bad. Sam, do you have some stats that, that sort of <laughs> show how bad he's been so far? Uh, on the season, you'd have to give me a second to pull it up. Over the last seven games, he's averaging a tad under 10 points. 3.6 rebounds, 1.7 assists, and two turnovers on a 34% shooting, uh, which obviously is is Ooh. is not great. And on yeah. the season, uh, I, I didn't prepare anything here, but I, look, I could just tell you on the season, his value over, he's got a 48% true shooting percentage, which is awful. His value over replacement players at negative 1.2, which is very, very bad. That's Jamal Crawford levels. And if you look historically because I've done this in the past, but I, again, don't have the list right with me. I can tweet it out later. If you look at the list of players who have had, from a value over replacement player standpoint, two rookie and sophomore seasons as bad as Josh Jackson has had, uh, th- there aren't really any examples of guys who recover from that to have good NBA careers. There are a couple of guys who maybe put it together and have decent NBA careers. Off the top of my head, I think Corey Brewer was a name that I saw on that list. I was, I was just looking at guys from the past 10 or 20 years trying to figure out who had such a rough start to their career just from an advanced statistics standpoint and still stuck around for a long time. And I think Corey Brewer was one of the better names on that list. Sebastian Telfair had a pretty long career as an NBA backup, but there's a lot more examples of guys on that list who were out of the league within five seasons. And I think that's the, I got po- the list. That's the point we're trending towards with Josh Jackson. Do you really have the list? I do. 
It's Norris Cole, Johnny Flynn, Adam Morrison, Marcus Fizzer, Chris Mim, Hanno Matola, and Nick Young. Nick Young. Nick Young had a solid career as well. But but so that's sort of what we're <laughs> what we're faced with with Josh Jackson. It's just, you know, we need to come to this sober realization that this and is this is, a, is right this now. is an important point. This is an important point. I'm reading off the text. We talked about this via text last week, so I'm just looking at those texts. And you said since the 2000 season, since the year 2000 season, only seven players have posted a cumulative value over replacement player of negative 2.3 or worse through their first two seasons. That stat's a remarkable stat on its own. Only seven players have been this bad through their first two seasons. And, you know, we just I just named them. You know, and that that that's a remarkable on I mean, its own. It's, it's got to be a it's got to be a, a combination of being that bad and getting that many minutes. Minutes, right? Because VORP is a VORP is a BPM box right. plus minus multiplier. So it depends how many minutes you get. So you know that's sort of where the losing culture seeps in. And Phoenix has put him in a situation where uh, it's been sort of okay for him to be this bad. We haven't really punished him at all for it. And I think that comes back to. What do you do next season? Does Josh Jackson even have any trade value going into the summer? Or is it just best to go into the season theoretically with a healthy Kelly Oubre and Mikhail Bridges and you just sort of bench Jackson behind those two? Because right now he certainly doesn't deserve minutes over them. Absolutely. I think and, and I think it's an important point that next year, if he continues to get minutes, the only way it can continue throughout the season is if he defies all odds at this point. He has to defy the odds that we just laid out. The players that have been as bad as him... The only one that's really been good, I guess, at a p- any point of his career, was Nick Young. And the reason Nick Young was able to get minutes late in his career was his shooting. He was able to, you know, when you're a shooter and you can, you can hit over 40% on threes, there's a place for you in the league. And, and if you're not even good at that, it makes it difficult to imagine him continuing to play minutes going forward. So, you know, I just the point I think that I want to make is it's very 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 unlikely that Josh Jackson works out at this point and I think it's okay for Suns fans to accept that because we are a team that is lucky enough to root for a bunch of good wings so when you have a bunch of other good wings it just doesn't make sense to hold on to that hope of Josh Jackson at this point and if you you know let it go a little bit this is the intervention part. Let it go a little bit. And then if he does, it's okay to be surprised. I know we all want to be on the right side of this here. Uh, and it's okay to want to continue loving Josh Jackson. It's okay. But it, it, you also have to accept he's been very, very bad. And for him to be good at this point will be a miracle, a basketball miracle. <laughs> you reminded me of another, because you were asking me about stats. You reminded me of another stat that I posted on Our Sons the other day. Um, synergy tracks play type data and posted on nba.com. And so over 50% of Josh Jackson's possessions on offense come in either transition, isolation, or on spot up shooting. And in those three things, those are like three critical things that if you are going to be a successful NBA player, at least on offense, then you need to kind of be okay at those things. He's converting in the 16th percentile in efficiency in transition, which is supposed to be kind of his calling card. 15th percentile in isolation and 11th percentile on spot ups. He's actually in the top 10 in the NBA. In if you look at the guys who have the most spot up opportunities, Josh Jackson is in the top 10 and he's in the 11th percentile. He's one of the only guys in the league who's getting so many opportunities to spot up from the wing and just can't hit those shots. 
Uh, and, and so again, it's just, you can continue to believe in Josh Jackson, but right now to believe that he's going to become anything better than a replacement level player is kind of an argument based on faith. It's, it's not really verifiably backed up by evidence, at least none that I've seen either with the eye test or through statistics so far. He makes great highlight plays, uh, but the, there's little substance behind that. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. And, you know, if you want to be one of those people who still holds on to hope, I, I don't, I, I support you. I fully support you, regardless of my intervention letter that I just read. Uh, but, I you know, reality has to seep in at some point. And the reality is it's very unlikely that he's good. And the less minutes he gets, probably the better that we are off at, at this point, especially when those minutes are taken up by guys like Mikhail Bridges, Kelly Uri, and hopefully TJ Warren in the future. A three-wing rotation of those three guys would look pretty good going forward. And, you know, if Josh Jackson ends up being the player that he could be, then obviously that would be a great fit. But the fact is he hasn't shown any reason to believe that. And if you want to blame our development staff, you you can. You know, maybe we end up trading him and he ends up being good on another team. But to me, this season has shown that we're actually doing okay at developing so far this season. DeAndre Ayton has gotten better every month. Mikhail Bridges has gotten better every month. So, you know, it, I have reason to believe that we're capable of developing players at this point. So, you know, if you want to hold on to hope, hold on to hope. But I, I think I'm giving up on it. <laughs> Any other Josh Jackson thoughts? Now that we've depressed everyone, let's move on to... Uh, uh, no, not really. Let's uh, watch the Suns get some more wins in the upcoming week. Yeah. Now that we've pumped all you guys up, I just realized what a depressing segment that was and what could have otherwise been our happiest episode in months. Look, we're Suns fans. We, You know, you got to take a little bit of the sweet with the sour. <laughs> you got to get both of it. It, it. This is the reality of it. You know, the fact that we're playing so well is is great news and the fact that it's through a lot of young guys is great news but it's okay to sort of be realistic with it and understand where the good play is coming from and where it's not coming from and you know it, you know it was the fourth overall pick and that's hard but you know when you tank you you're taking risks and that's just how it is you know we've talked about it in the past Jaleel Okafor Michael Carter Williams these are guys that the Philadelphia 76ers had to get through in order to get uh, Embiid and Ben Simmons. So hopefully we have our Embiid and Ben Simmons now with Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton, and we can be happy about those guys. And of course, Mikhail Bridges, it's just the icing on that cake. So it's okay. It's just, you know, and hopefully Josh Jackson will do something remarkable in these last few weeks of the season, and we can have a segment at the end of the season talking about how stupid we were in this episode, right? <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. We'll see what happens. <laughs> upcoming games will be interesting we've talked a little bit about it we have a schedule that gets a little softer um but you know we we do have utah we have um i guess our next game is utah houston and new orleans those are the next games that we'll be talking about on our next week's episode utah we haven't really seen a lot of them this year i think this might be the first time we're playing them i don't remember that we played I them yet think, oh no we played them once yeah we played them once uh but we have three more games against them and they're a tough team yeah, in Houston and New Orleans. New Orleans is a crapshoot. You never know what kind of team you're getting. And Houston is playing the best basketball they've, they've played basically all season right now. So that'll be a difficult game for us. So hopefully we get Utah. It'd be nice to beat Donovan Mitchell. And then New Orleans, we beat them before. So maybe Actually, we can beat them again, right? Donovan Mitchell just threw out some love for Devin Booker on Twitter last night. So I think it's just what? funny how much. Yeah, he really did. He was like, I see you. Conflicted. 
So, you know, it's kind of funny how much that debate, first of all, has died down this season, I guess, because Mitchell is kind of stagnated with his production, but also just how inflated it is between the fan bases. Like, do Booker and Mitchell actually care? No. <laughs> just a nice thing to remind ourselves <laughs> of. I wonder who uh, DeAndre Ayton's going to guard against Houston. Should we just put him on James Harden? We should just put him on the best player on the opposing team, no matter what kind of position they play at this point. Let's see what happens. I don't know if he could stick with Harden for a full game. I think that would be pretty ugly. <laughs> <laughs> no, that'd be, st- it'd be step back three after step back three. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you next week. A roast? I've always wanted to be roasted. You just wrapped up another episode of The Timeline. I love this podcast. And if you're like me, you want as much Suns content as possible. That's why I listen to The Timeline every week. So if you want to go ahead and hear some more Phoenix Suns content, go ahead and listen to the solar panel of Phoenix Suns show. We are available on Spotify, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play, anywhere that you listen to podcasts, go ahead and check out the solar panel of Phoenix Suns show. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.